Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, Globes, and Anchors. I'm your host, Jim Lacey, Professor of Strategic Studies at the Marine Corps War College. Today, we are discussing Allied leadership during World War II, particularly in the run-up to Operation Overlord and its supporting campaigns. My guest today is Jonathan Jordan. He is the author of American Warlords, How Roosevelt's High Command Led America to Victory in World War II. The New York Times bestseller, Brothers, Rivals, Victors, Eisenhower, Patton Bradley, and the partner ship that drove the Allied conquest in Europe, and the award-winning book, Lone Star Navy, Texas and the Fight for the Gulf of Mexico, and the Shaping of the American West. He is a contributing author to the Armchair Reader, World War II, and the Armchair Reader, The Amazing Book of World History, and the editor of the Library of Texas edition of To the People of Texas by Texas Navy Commodore Edward Ward Moore. His writing has appeared in World War II Magazine, Armchair General, Military History, World War II History, and Military History Quarterly. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show today. Jim, it's great to be here at the War College. Thanks for having me. Well, I doubt my introduction does you any justice. So there anything anything you want to add that my audience doesn't know about you, particularly anything on upcoming projects? Jim, I've got a few that are in the works. I've finished a manuscript on the history of women as national military leaders from uh, ancient times to the Falklands War. And I'm now starting on uh, another book on the Second World War and the Cold War called Ike and Winston and the relationship uh, between the United States and Great Britain. I have an interest in both of them. Did you get Bodica or Bodicea, however we're pronouncing her name this year? She's, she's one of them, and uh, she's, she's one of those examples that uh, you have of what not to do sometimes. <laughs> Take on the Roman army at the height of its power. Um, I think the smart thing for us to do right now is just jump right into it. I have a question I think has been on the lips of everyone who has ever studied World War II. What if there had been no slapping incident and Patton had commanded the 12th Army Group and Bradley had been a subordinate 3rd Army commander? Would it have worked? Well, Jim, the higher up you go in the hierarchy, at least during the Second World War, the more you need two things, balance and political sense. George Patton had a great sense of battles, of uh, even a certain sense of logistics, but his sense of balance and his sense of politics were not really up to the task by the time you get into the stratosphere of an army group commander. Now, remember, the 12th Army Group uh, consisted of three armies. Uh, The first army was there to support Montgomery's flank. The second army was there to support Montgomery's flank. And the third army, that was Patton's, was there to go into central Germany. Well, Patton was excellent at commanding a single army, uh, but having the balance he needed to know which army goes into which place and uh, to have the political savvy to know how to keep himself out of trouble when he gets in front of a microphone or a reporter with a notepad was something that was not really on Patton's mind. Patton came up through the cavalry and he had a mindset that was a horse soldier's attack, attack, attack. A horseman is going to get cut down on a battlefield if he stays still for too long, so Patton's forte was in driving hard and moving fast. Bradley's mindset was a little different. 
Bradley came up through the infantry, and he had a, an infantryman's sense of self-preservation, of the vulnerability of the human body to bullets and shrapnel. And so Bradley tended to think of things like secure flanks, secure logistics, the kinds of things that made him a more balanced commander. And after the war, General Eisenhower said that uh, of the two, he liked Patton in the role of a fast pursuit general, but he also liked Bradley in the role of Army Group commander. And I think at the end, Jim, we can probably uh, be thankful that the two of them ended up where they did. All right. So there is a follow on question to that. You know, there's always the argument made by the British, particularly that Montgomery should have ran the grand battle, but the ground battle, at least. And I just want to take that up one level. Was there anybody, British or American, that could have done what Eisenhower did during the war? Among the bench on both the British and American sides, probably the only person who commanded the respect of both Americans and Britons was General George C. Marshall. Uh, the British knew that they would not have the majority of forces, and uh, they eventually conceded that. Winston Churchill agreed that an American would have to lead Overlord. But uh, finding somebody in the American bench who had Eisenhower's sense of logistics, his political sense, his interpersonal personal skills. The closest we could probably come to that was General George Marshall, and he was too valuable in Washington where he was. And honestly, Jim, uh, pretty much nobody had the uh, interpersonal skills that Eisenhower did. Everybody liked Ike. It's what made him president, probably. Uh, I think there was another side to Eisenhower that uh, most Americans aren't aware of, where he could be as steely cold as anybody, anyone else that anyone has ever met. Um, and Eisenhower had a temper. Uh, he also could get uh, very angry. Uh, his son once told me that his father never held a grudge as long as he won. But uh, for those few people like uh, Jacob Devers, a uh, few others who won, Eisenhower was short on forgiveness. And he also accepted that uh, people at the top get to use people underneath them as uh, pawns and throw them away if they need to. And that was the other side of Ike that the uh, genial uh, smiling picture on the presidential campaign ca- uh, poster doesn't show. I'd like to come back to uh, Devers, Eisenhower, a controversy, which is relatively recent as a controversial topic, but I think a very important one. Uh, don't let me forget that. Um, but okay. One other question before we go in that direction, maybe one or two. Um, can you tell me something about Eisenhower's relationship with Montgomery? Who was at fault? And if it got, it did seem to get so bad at some points that Eisenhower wanted to fire him. What kept, what kept him from doing that? Eisenhower's relationship with uh, Montgomery, like Montgomery's relationship with everyone else, was difficult. Recall that Winston Churchill once said of Monty, he's indomitable in retreat, invincible in advance, and insufferable in victory. And uh, that was the way a lot of people, both British and American, felt about him. Monty, I suspect, was an excellent person to work for, but not a very good person to work with, and a very difficult one to work over. Montgomery wasn't the one who pushed the boundaries. He just never saw the boundaries. 
he was uh, irascible. Uh, he was selfish in a lot of ways, and that made him a good commander in certain areas. But by the time you get up to 21st Army Group Commander, which Montgomery was, it's you had to play on a team, and Eisenhower was used to everybody playing ball together. Montgomery was not used to that, and so uh, uh, Montgomery was probably the person who uh, has more to blame, I think, if you look at the scope of Eisenhower's relations and the scope of, uh, of Montgomery's relations. But in the end, Montgomery was the hero of El Alamein. He was the uh, top British general. And it would have been extremely unpopular for Winston Churchill to uh, allow Eisenhower to fire his general, particularly to allow an American to fire a top British general. So Eisenhower really didn't have the luxury of, of firing him except in extreme circumstances. And it really wasn't until late, uh, late 1944 that he was ready to, uh, to give an ultimatum to the British. And uh, in that at that time, Montgomery backed down. Uh, Montgomery thought that he had a pretty winning, a pretty good winning hand, but then he uh, learned that there was another British general who might be able to replace him, uh, Sir Harold Alexander. When he realized that, he went back to Eisenhower. He was respectful to him, and while they were never personal friends, uh, they certainly kept a good working relationship. Oh, that's all very interesting. Um, you did talk a bit a bit about there about uh, being over Montgomery and how difficult that was. But Eisenhower also had a bunch of bosses during the war, and he was reporting on both the British side and the American side. He had bosses on both sides, both on the military military bosses plus political bosses. So how did he deal with those military bosses above him, Marshall and Allenbrook, and the political bosses, FDR and Churchill? How could could Montgomery have handled that? And and tell us a little bit about how um, Eisenhower himself did this kind of work. There are few people in the world at the time who had Eisenhower's ability to subvert his ego to the uh, to the needs of the greater good. Montgomery certainly was not the type to be able to do that. Eisenhower, of course, was designated the supreme commander of the European Theater of Operations. And that title, Supreme Commander, seems very impressive uh, until you realize that uh, he had political bosses, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. He had the uh, combined chiefs of staff, which consisted of the American chiefs and the British chiefs. And even though he was nominally superior to them, he considered his position and his headquarters, uh, SHAFE, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, to be basically a servant leader of the people who were getting the job done. So if air or navy or supplies needed something, it was his job to figure out how to get that done. Uh, Eisenhower dealt with that by uh, trying to get some exercise, by chain smoking, by worrying, by working himself too much, uh, by letting his health go, and, uh, and, and keeping as many close friends around him who he could uh, sort of let himself unwind with occasionally when the pressure got to him. 
Once again, all very interesting. Uh, well, we have a minute. We have several minutes. We've got a lot of minutes, actually. Can you uh, let's uh, let's take a moment and circle back to what you said about Eisenhower losing an argument to Devers and holding the grudge? Can you shed any light on that relationship? I mean, Devers was the equivalent of Bradley. He's I call him the Forgotten Army Group commander. He commanded Six Army Group to the left of Patton. Um, came came in through the Mediterranean and brought his army right up to the um, German border. But um, a lot of people say Devers could have done more uh, if Eisenhower had always supported him or even just let him off his chain. Any insights uh, you could bring into that argument? I'd love to hear them. Sure. Sixth Army Group came along on the southern end of the Allied line, basically from the Swiss border up to where Patton's army started. It consisted of both French and American forces, so it was kind of a put-together group. Nonetheless, Devers was able to push his army group uh, to the Rhine before any of the other uh, Allied army groups made it there, and potentially was able to cross into German territory over the traditional uh, border of Germany before anyone else. And so one might say, how come Eisenhower didn't let him off the leash, as you put it, Jim? There were a couple of reasons here. The first one, uh, the one that I think Eisenhower liked to believe was driving his decisions, was that strategically the Deep South was not the place where the Allies wanted to win the war. They wanted to win the war on the northern side near the industrial heartland of Germany around the Ruhr region. And Devers was at the opposite end of that. He wouldn't be able to accomplish that. He could threaten southern Germany. But uh, but Schaaf's planners didn't think that that would be enough to cause Germany to collapse. The interpersonal side, which I think may have something to do with it as well, was that Eisenhower never particularly liked Devers. Uh, Devers started out as the, uh, uh, the U.S. Army commander of the European theater in kind of a uh, uh, an administrative role. And uh, when Eisenhower was in the process of preparing his invasion of Italy, he needed to uh, have the loan of four bomber groups that uh, Devers wouldn't allow him to have. Uh, Devers believed that, or at least said, that uh, the bombers were going to be used for strategic purposes, bombing uh, German factories. And Eisenhower felt like uh, the lack of bomber support, which he attributed to Devers, was something that uh, threatened the success of his Italian invasion. So Eisenhower held a grudge, um, and when General Marshall asked Eisenhower to rate his generals from top to bottom in the European theater, Devers, who was up there, as you said, with Omar Bradley and with Bernard Montgomery, rated number 24 on Ike's list. <laughs> 24 is a pretty low rating for somebody who gets a six, an entire army group to command, but... Uh, I guess it's a lot more personal than professional in that one, and uh, I guess the final answer is still waiting some historian to dig deep in, dig deep into that um, disagreement. Let's call it absolutely. All right, now let's take a moment and talk some dirt. What did Patton really think about Montgomery, and what did Bradley think about Patton or any of these other generals you, at the top that you want to talk about? Well, remember that everybody has a point where they've got to blow off steam. They may blow off steam to an aide. They may blow off steam in their diary. They may, as Patton did, blow off steam to both. 
Patton did not think a lot of Montgomery at one level, but he had a grudging respect for him at another. He wrote uh, in his diary that Montgomery is a selfish man, but he is a man. And he believed that uh, General Sir Hallowed, uh, uh, Harold Alexander, uh, the commander of both Patton and Montgomery, was a little bit afraid of Monty. He felt that Ike was a little afraid of Monty as well. Patton felt that Montgomery's only real accomplishment was El Alamein and hadn't done too much after that. And uh, Patton wrote that he was sickened when uh, Montgomery was promoted to field marshal in September of 1944. Um, as far as Bradley and Patton goes, there's a, uh, a kind of a respect-hate relationship there. Uh Patton felt that Bradley was uh, too cautious at times. Bradley felt that Patton was uh, basically uh, too unbalanced to be a good general. He said that uh, Patton was a shallow general in one of his memoirs. He uh, was unimpressed with Patton's concern with attack to the exclusion of things like logistics or secure flanks or knowing how to get communications between headquarters or call, call in air support properly. Bradley had a lot of criticism when he was working for Patton, particularly in Sicily. At one point, uh, Bradley was sent back to the United States after the Tunisian campaign, and he spent a good bit of, I'm sorry, after the Sicilian campaign, and he spent a good bit of time talking to General George C. Marshall, the head of the U.S. Army, the chief of staff, about the shortcomings in Patton's headquarters. So there was a lot of sniping back and forth. Uh, Eisenhower thought in particular that Patton could be uh, difficult, unpredictable, and he told his driver, Kay Summersby, that Patton is just like a time bomb. You never know when he's going to go off, but you know it's going to go off at the worst possible time. Now, these were, these were uh, men who had their, their own personal feelings, their loves, their hates, their jealousies. Uh, but the remarkable thing is that despite the, the tension and the frustration of the times, the pressure cooker that they were living in, and the differences between them all, they managed to set aside those professional and personal differences when their countries needed them to work together for the common good. All right. Next, uh, one thing I want to address is leave the personalities aside for a minute, and let's talk a bit about the actual strategy of the war. Uh, this is one I went back and forth on myself, and uh, I think I finally decided on an answer, which I may or may not tell you after I hear which way you would go, but uh, the broad front or the narrow front strategy, who was right and why? The broad front, of course, uh, began popping up in late summer and early fall of 1944. General Montgomery felt that uh, as the army on the far left, he was in the best position to reach the Ruhr and eventually to reach Berlin. And his strategy, which uh, he called the narrow thrust, it could be called, it's been called the dagger thrust, or uh, as some detractors have called it, the pencil thrust, basically went like this. Eisenhower, give me your petrol. Give me your, your artillery ammunition. Give me air support and give me flank protection by one or more of your armies under Bradley, and I will take us all the way to Berlin. I will plant the Union Jack on the Brandenburg Gate. Um, the broad front approach was, uh, was almost the opposite. 
it was kind of a, uh, a version of what Eisenhower had studied about Grant's 1864 campaign. It was an idea that we're going to push ahead uh, relentlessly on a broad variety of fronts. And uh, we're not going to be able to go as fast as Montgomery could if we gave him everything, but we'll all get there and most importantly, the Germans won't be able to jump from one emergency to another. Equally importantly, we won't have a single uh, single uh, neck sticking out that uh, the Germans might be able to cut off if they can marshal enough forces. So uh, there were two schools of thought on the better way to approach things. Uh, Montgomery wanted the narrow thrust, which benefited Montgomery coincidentally. Uh, Bradley and Patton wanted the broad front, which benefited them a little better. And in the end, Eisenhower made the decision to go with the broad front approach. And even though it took down, uh, it, it took things a lot longer or longer than possibly they they might have taken to uh, end the war in Europe, notwithstanding Montgomery's promises, I think it was probably the right decision. And it's that's because the Germans were very good at fighting fires, moving things on their central lines from one side to another. And once they detected pressure weakening from Bradley, uh, Patton, and Devers, they were more likely to mass their armored forces north. They, they weren't stupid. They could eventually figure that out. Uh, additionally, Eisenhower's belief that we could continue pushing on a broad front made an assumption that was not unrealistic at the time. The assumption was that the port of Antwerp would be open, and once it was, uh, the world's third largest port would be able to move supplies in and, and get, keep everybody going at a reasonable pace. Uh, in the end, that's going to be a subject of great debate uh, for probably as, as long as any of us are around, but uh, my own personal view is probably Ike's uh, result was the right one. What do All you right. think, Jim? All right. You got that one right. Very okay. proud of you. <laughs> uh, and I agree with you for almost all of the reasons you mentioned. And now, but that's only test one. If you get the next question right, and we're in full agreement on that, you will be accorded the podcast honor, Marine <laughs> Podcast honor of being rated top strategist of the week. <laughs> Big honor comes with a Coke. All right. All right. <laughs> I got, got my pencil ready. All right. This is, a, this, is a, this is an easy one. After the Normandy breakout, what was the biggest mistake the Allies made? I've always thought that the worst mistake the Allies made was not opening up the Scheldt estuary to uh, Antwerp. Uh, the war was going to be won with a flow of supplies. Uh, Montgomery took the, uh, uh, the port of Antwerp uh, approximately the 4th of September 1944. It was the end of November 1944 before any of the supplies were able to get through that port. Uh, Eisenhower was counting on that, and the reason for that was the uh, Allies had done such a great job of destroying the rail and road networks so it wouldn't help the Germans prior to D-Day that when it was our turn to use those road networks, we just couldn't get the ammunition, the the uh, petroleum, the food, the lubricants, and so forth up to the supply uh, up to the front line where we needed them. So, in my view, what hampered us more than anything else was probably our inability to get uh, the port of Antwerp working and and in full tilt. Jonathan, you are 100% absolutely right. All right. There we go. <laughs> Get this man a Coke. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, 
I fully agree with that. I, I, I don't know who to blame. I think I think I could blame Montgomery because it's in his sector, but I also blame Eisenhower because, you know, he was the boss and he could have commanded instead of letting them go off on the uh, inane, maybe. I don't know if that, that might be too strong a word, market garden operation. His orders to uh, Montgomery were always a little bit conditional. They kind of reminded me of Lee's orders before Gettysburg to, uh, you know, to take the high ground if practicable. Yeah, that's that's very true. One would assume that if the if the major port in all of Europe was in your sector, that one would General Eisenhower might be right to assume Mont- Montgomery would clean it out and capture the port and clear the clear the estuary. But uh, maybe some things have to be spelt out. <laughs> All right. Finally, you've spent a lot of time studying the personalities of World War II commanders, and we always like to try and bring this podcast back to something that's helpful for the present day. So do you have any thoughts for leaders today on how personality impacts decisions or even the course of a conflict in, in, in total? You know, Eisenhower once wrote to an old friend that if he knew the, uh, the commander of a division intimately, then he would be able to tell you how effective that division would be when it actually gets to combat. I think uh, we overlook the role of personalities, the personal qualities of leaders at our own peril. Uh, General Marshall had a, uh, a highly successful run of picking combat leaders and uh, and administrative leaders and, and many other types of, of military commanders. And he did so by using a few criteria. And uh, two of the most important for Marshall were, first, is the man going to keep an optimistic view? Is he going to keep a steadiness of purpose when everything is starting to fall apart and everybody around them is critical? Now, that's important in this uh, in this Twitter uh, driven world where uh, it's easy to be rapidly criticized. And uh, we're at that stage probably of the Internet where we hear a lot of criticism, but we're not yet ready to tune it all out. And so having somebody who can keep an optimistic bearing, who will not let themselves go to pieces or make it about themselves is, uh, is one thing that, uh, that I think the Second World War can tell us. The second thing that uh, Marshall looked for is someone who would subordinate their own career, their own personal ambitions to the greater good. And I think the second lesson from the Second World War uh, from people like Eisenhower, Bradley, Patton, uh, maybe some negative lessons from a few like Montgomery, is that once you find a cause that is worth fighting for, it ought to be worth making sacrifices to your career or for your uh, your personal interests for. And if you do that, uh, you may miss out on some short-term uh, gains, but uh, that's the job you're being asked to do, and, and that's the way they did it in the Second World War. Okay, Jonathan. Jonathan, very good. Enjoyed having you here. Thanks for being on the show. I know our students enjoyed their time with you, and we look forward to having you back in McWar this time next year. Hopefully you can make it for us. I'm your host, Jim Lacey. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the United States Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWar College. 
And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.